I am back with my newly established official co-host, Ben, and we have a very special show for you. Um, we've had a lot going on in the news with UFOs and things like that, and Ben jumped on this one right away, dove into the library, dove into the resources, and he wants to give us some background information on what he believes is going on. Hey, Ben, how's it going? I'm doing pretty good, Sage. How about yourself? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, I thank to official, you know, I I thank you for officially dubbing you the co-host. And and you know now you've been uh, uh, Sir Sir Ben here at, over at the at this channel, and and I'm I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it. You bring a lot of information and a lot of research, so it's going to be good. Oh, I'm excited too, and I'm uh, glad I can uh, be of some help. Absolutely. So. We both kind of talked about this a little bit, and the, the, actually, the minute it happened, you immediately contacted me and said, "We got to do a show. We, we uh, this we, this is a big one. Let's I got to do this one." So we kind of switched up some stuff, and you want to talk a little bit about what's going on with the UFO, but you kind of want to start in the beginning and give us a good timeline and kind of walk us into the into what's going on today, correct? Yeah, and and just to give the users an idea of where I'm going with this is, um, you know, we have this this new guy who has come out and said, uh, you know, we have these crashed retrieval extraterrestrial UFOs and and all of this stuff. And my goal today is to try to convince you um, that this is not extraterrestrial technology. Really, um, this is um, one of two things. This is either human technology. And I'm gonna. We're gonna go through the technological trail um, in the history, or a kind of a convergence of human technology and some kind of discovered technology that that kind of ties into what we've talked to or, or talked about before with mm -hmm. uh, the advanced technology of the the ice age. Right. <clears throat> so that that's my goal today is to try to convince you that they are, um, you know, they are engaging in a mass psyop right now. Okay. All right, so why don't we do this? Why don't we kind of start at the beginning? And you want to basically start right from uh, balloons, basically. Yeah, um, a lot of people, you know, have heard about the Wright brothers and their first mm -hmm. flight, um, and that was in 1912. But a lot of people don't think about, you know, ballooning. Like, we've been flying long before that. Mm. Um, and this goes all the way back to August of 1783 in France, uh, where uh, Jacques Charles, uh, Le Ferre, and Anne Jean Robert, I'm not French, so if I'm butchering this, uh, <laughs> I apologize. Uh, but they generated uh, the first hydrogen balloon by dumping a quarter ton of sulfuric acid on iron scrap. That's how they, they were uh, making hydrogen back then. Ouch. Um, and they filled up a 34 cubic meter sphere and was able to lift a whopping 2.2 pounds. So not a lot, uh, but we're, we're going somewhere with this. Mm -hmm. um, the first man flight was actually a couple months later uh, when a guy by the name of Joseph uh, Michel and Jacques Antienne Montgolfier, mm -hmm. uh, they made a 50 foot diameter hot air balloon with a fire slung under the neck in uh, the balloon basket. And they jumped on and went for a 25 minute ride that went five miles. Um, so step in the right direction. Right. Um, a couple of months later, we've got uh, Jacques Charles and the Robert brothers again. They come back with a 380 cubic meter balloon, and they went up 1,800 feet. Their flight lasted 125 minutes, and they covered 22 miles. Mm -hmm. um, now, now keep in mind that these balloons were basically going with the wind. They didn't have any directional steering or anything like that. Very, very primitive, but 
you know, they're up there. They're flying around. So when we get into the 1790s, this is the during the French Revolution, uh, they took this technology and used tethered hydrogen balloons for observation of the battlefield. And of course, as you can imagine, this was a game changer. Right. You know, if you're a general, you can jump up in a balloon and look out and be like, OK, these guys need to go here. These guys need to go here and write it down on a piece of paper, drop it to the ground. And some guy on the ground would pick it up, and take it to the front lines. You know, that that's a big game changer as far as, uh, you know, the way they were conducting war. Um so when we get to 1812, we got a guy by the name of Franz Lepic who uh, went to Napoleon and said, hey, uh, I got this idea for a dirigible, and a dirigible is a steerable balloon. Um, so if you think of something like a Zeppelin, it would be kind mm. of a precursor to that. In fact, a Zeppelin is considered a dirigible. Um, but Napoleon looked at it, and he was like, uh, no, that's a little too dangerous. We're not doing that. <laughs> so uh, he went to Russia, the other side, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can consider this kind of Russia's first black budget aerial project because the Russian Secret Service quickly brought him in. They built him a heavily guarded high walled shipyard. Uh, they sent him in with 50 other German speaking mechanics. Keep that in mind because that comes important later. Okay. To, to help with the design. Uh, but it was plagued with problems. They couldn't get the envelope to hold uh, the hydrogen, uh, they had trouble getting it to go against the wind. Um, so eventually it was destroyed in 1817. So it never really got off the ground, so to speak. Um, so then we have the, the Franco Austrian war in 1859. They used observation balloons, um, here in the United States during the civil war. Um, in the 1860s, the union army balloon Corps used hot air balloons to overlook the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get to the 1890s when something very interesting happens. And, uh, this is the phenomenon known as the mystery airships of the 1890s. <clears throat> now, a lot of this, um, a lot of this is very controversial because of the newspaper sensationalism at the time, you know, it, it, news kind of happened like it does today. There was a lot of sensationalism thrown out there to try to get viewership and, and paper sales and that sort of thing. Right, right. Uh, but this began with something and it was uh, a sighting in 1896 in Sacramento, California. And this was at night and it was viewed by hundreds of witnesses in the town. Um, and they noticed this massive blimp flying over and, they could hear singing um they could hear men shouting orders and it was low enough that they could see what appeared to be some kind of bicycle apparatus underneath it with some guys pedaling Mm -hmm. to get this thing propelled forward um so this was the first sighting uh and like i said this 1896 right um eventually the reports got as far away as chicago there were ultimately 150 of these sightings over the united states um, and like I said, many were written off as hoaxes. Um, there was a guy that came out um, as an attorney who claimed to represent the inventor of this. Um, he turned out to be a hoax. Uh, there was a guy that claimed to be the inventor, and uh, he turned out to be a massive fraud. But there was actually something really happening here. Um, one sighting was actually witnessed by a judge, attorneys, juries, and other witnesses that had taken a break in the court case due to all the commotion going on outside. They actually walked outside and looked up and saw this blimp traveling at what they claimed to be an incredible speed across the sky. Um, the report from Dallas Morning News in 1897 reported that an airship crashed into a windmill. Uh, there was an occupant that was killed. Um, he was uh, reportedly buried at the site uh, with a headstone. And in 1973, some investigators went out there to try to investigate the story to see if there was any truth to it. 
And not only did they find the headstone in the grave, but they also went over the area with metal detectors and found foreign materials there. And uh, the initial Dallas Morning News story kind of kind of had that sensationalism and started talking about, oh, this was an extraterrestrial crash. So we have kind of the early precursor to, you know, the Roswell incident Mm -hmm. going on here in the 1890s. Wow. Um, So uh, these investigators, they wanted to exhume the body to see, you know, if it was human, what was it? And they were denied. Um, Eventually the the headstone was stolen. uh, So we really don't know where, where this location is now. Unfortunately, Hmm. Um, there was a report uh, that a farmer claimed that one of them landed next to one of his retention ponds out in his field. So he went out there to confront them and they actually came out and talked to him and they said that uh, they were working for a financier from New York City and they they claimed that they were going to change human travel forever. Um, So that was an interesting, uh, I I don't know if I would call it anecdotal so to speak, but interesting yeah. story nonetheless. And uh, it was reported that they were fast. And so I had to think, okay, well, in the 1890s, what was fast back then? So I found uh, a uh, uh, one of the steam trains that we had. I, I forget what line it was called, but could actually travel up to 70 miles an hour. So we had something that fast back then. Mm-hmm. So I had, to, I had to think, you know, 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 miles per hour would be considered extremely fast for them. Definitely. Um, so, and, and what was interesting about the time is, is there was this, this misconception that people uh, couldn't handle those kinds of speeds. Like anything above a horse traveling at, say, 45 miles an hour was considered too fast for the human body to handle. Right. So if you can think, you know, these people looking up at something traveling faster than that, why they would conclude that, oh, well, that must be extraterrestrial or alien or something. Not Definitely not us up there doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the reports uh, reported that uh, there was a bright light um, in the sky associated with this. And this is attributed to arc lamp lighting that they had back in the day. So um, what they used to do before street lighting and all of that, they used to have these uh, lighting towers in the middle of cities. So that you'd have this big tower and it would have these arc lamps going around it that would shine down on the city. And that's how they would you know, light it, light it up at night. Right. And so they were using these arc lamps on these airships, you know, in order to see so they wouldn't hit a tree, a hill, a mountain, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so in digging into this, trying to figure out, OK, well, who's building these? Who where is this coming from? Um, I've heard all kinds of, of stories, but, um, you know, since we have these airships being pioneered by the Germans later on, you know, the Zeppelins and all that stuff, um, you know, it's likely to conclude that they were developed possibly in secret by German nationals. Um, you know, there was a lot of immigration going on of, of Germans into the United States and they were creating clubs and all kinds of stuff like that. And, uh, there was this place uh, in Sonora, California, there was the Sonora Aero Club, which was the only German national run organization that would have had the means and the funding for, for something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I speculate that these ships were likely fitted with some of the newest compact steam engines that they were developing at the time. They were, they were developing these really small um, engines for you know farming work with tractors, uh, locomotives, uh, horseless carriages at the time. Right. Um, so they, they had that technology and they also had, uh, uh, DC generators back then. So they had the ability to have a steam engine, not only on board, but also a DC generator to provide the electrical power for the arc lighting that they used. Um, so this technology was there. 
um, especially if they were using hydrogen as a lifting gas, since hydrogen has a lot more lifting power than helium. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also easier to procure and cheaper and that sort of thing. And interesting to note that Sonora, California is only 71 miles from Sacramento, which is where the first sighting occurred. So it makes sense that this is where this stuff was coming from. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. It's always California. It's always California. Uh, yep, yep. So, it always, always is. So, the, okay, then after, so we've got these engines and possibly little engines and, uh, you know, an possibility of little motors, if you're saying DC, right? Because a motor would run off, of, you know, some type of electricity. So, well, I thought about, uh, you know, ha having DC motors actually uh, propelling the thing along, but the problem with that is, is that adds a lot of weight. It would right. it would have made a lot more sense for it to be uh, direct steam, maybe some gearing uh, for a propeller to to get them going instead of a, a DC um, motors for that. Uh, but definitely for the arc lighting, they would have needed some kind of power because a battery, you know, that's only going to last so long. Right, right. Okay, because yeah, because that's what I was going to say with with the you know that's kind of heavy because that's one of the issues we deal with now with electric cars is they're heavy as hell. Okay, oh, yeah. so. Where that where do they go from there? Well, here we kind of um, um, I, I, it's going to sound like I'm going to skip around here, but I'm I'm trying to go chronologically to kind of tell this story. Um, so we skip here into uh, 1898, which is when the War of the Worlds novel came out from H.G. Wells. Yeah. Um, this becomes important later on, but I just wanted to point out this is 1898 that we're talking about this stuff. We're talking about War of the Worlds, extraterrestrials coming to Earth uh, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So when World War I begins, now we're getting into the 20th century. Yeah. Um, in 1917, kind of towards the end of the war, there was this guy by the name of John Dewey. He was a professor of philosophy at Columbia University, and he was at the Imperial Japanese Mission uh, which was basically a mission the Japanese wanted to come over here and make friends. Um, obviously, that, that didn't last. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> but, but uh, this is a record of the reception throughout the United States of the special mission headed by Viscount Ishii in New York. And John Dewey gave a speech, and uh, this is what he said. Uh, quote, someone remarked that the best way to unite all the nations on this globe would be an attack from some other planet. In the face of such an alien enemy, people would respond with a sense of their unity and of interest and purpose. We have the next best thing to that at this present time, talking about World War I. Right. Uh, before a common menace, North and South America, the Occident, the Orient, have done an unheard of thing, a wonderful thing, a thing which it may well be future history will point to as the most significant thing in these days of wonderful happenings. They have joined forces amply and intimately in a cause of one another and with European nations which were most directly threatened. What a few dreamers had hoped might happen in the course of some slow coming century has become an accomplished fact in a few swift years. In spite of geograph geographical distance, unlike speech, diverse religion, and hitherto independent aims, nations from every continent have formed what for the time being is nothing less than a world state, an immense cooperative action in behalf of civilization. A one world order. Go ahead. <clears throat> so... This should sound familiar to some people who are familiar with some of the speeches that Ronald Reagan gave, because he gave this almost exact same speech six times during his presidency. Really? That someone once remarked that the best way to unite all the nations on this globe would be an attack from some other planet. 
So what he's doing here is he's interjecting this idea into kind of the ethos of mankind that, hey, this, is, this, this could be a thing, right? Mm-hmm. So we're, we're talking about kind of uh, uniting the world in a one-world government under uh, an external threat. That external threat becomes important uh, much later on, as, as we'll find out. Wow. Wow. Putting it all together for us, Ben. You're putting it all together. Next piece so, of that puzzle. And so keep in mind, this is 1917. Yes. This yes. is a long time ago. Uh, okay, so um, uh, I'm going to briefly cover um, – we're, we're moving up to 1924 now. So we're, okay. we're out of World War I. We're in the interim period. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Joseph Stalin has taken control and leadership of the Soviet Union. So right. now we have the Soviets. Um, and the Soviets, uh, through a man by the name of Boris Chernovsky, creates uh, what's called the BL- BLCH-3, which is the first flying wing design aircraft. Mm. So this is uh, 12 years after the Wright brothers. So if you can imagine after the Wright brothers uh, you know, made that first flight, everybody was scrambling to come up with new ideas for, for airplanes, right? Right, right. Um, so this was the first Soviet-era flying wing design. So the Soviets kind of got there first in that regard. Now, it, it wasn't perfect. It, it had its problems. It was very unstable. It, it wasn't all that great, but it's a start, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, let's see. And, I, and I, like I said, I don't want to sound like I'm jumping around too much. I'm just going chronologically here. Right. Um, in 1925, so a year after that, um, there's a guy by the name of Nick- Nicholas Rorick who was a Russian immigrant to the United States. He was a mystic, a theosophist. Um, What's a theosophist? What's that? That is a very good question. So theosophy came out of basically the late 1800s, and it was pioneered by a few people. Uh, one of the most famous uh, people may have heard of, but Helena Petrovka Blavatsky, um, who wrote most of her books based on her psychic experiences with so-called underground races. Hmm. So um, this is where we we uh, uh, H.P. Blavatsky is where we get the idea of the Aryan race. And what they mean by that and what the original intent was by Aryan was if you look at the astrological signs, Aries comes first, right? It's the first sign. Aries. Okay. Yes. So when we're talking about the Aryan race, we're talking about people who came before us, right? We're not talking about, you know, white supremacy or anything. This, this is stuff that came after World War II um, through the Nazis. But before that, we're talking about a, a kind of root race that kind of started mankind, is, is what we're talking about. Okay. So the idea behind uh, theosophy was that, uh, you know, science is not answering the questions that we have, and neither is religion. So we need some kind of new philosophy or thought process to kind of answer some of these questions. And, and theosophy was trying to be the answer to that. Um, it, it didn't work out so well, Um because a lot of a lot of crazy people got on board with it uh, in the early twenty or uh, in the early twentieth century and kind of ruined the name of, of what they were trying to do, and uh, you know Blavatsky was a controversial character herself, so you know there was a lot of problems with theosophy. Okay, <clears throat> but that's what they were trying to solve. They were trying to solve the you know science doesn't have it right, religion doesn't have it right. How do we meet in the middle and try to come up with some real answers? Is what they were trying to do. Got it. So Nicholas Rourke um, and his family, basically his wife and his son, were, were all um, 
into this theosophy. Um, his wife was, uh, you know, into um, the the woo world of things, and so was Nicholas. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick, Nicholas was a painter, a writer, all of these things, and he managed <clears throat> somehow to procure funding from the FDR administration <laughs> of, of the United did. States <laughs> to fund an expedition to uh, the. Um, the Asian region, I would say, you know, Mongolia, China, Tibet, the, that kind of region. Yeah. And the public, um, I guess you would say the the public version of this was that they were going out and uh, collecting cultural samples and writing down cultures and, and you know, talking about basically Asian culture. Yeah. Um, so that's what they were doing or, or that's what they were doing publicly. Privately, it turns out that Nicholas Rorick was interested in trying to find the entrances to these underground cities, the underground city of Shambhala, um, mm. Agartha, all of these different places. And uh, he, it, it was a five-year trek, and they ended up in the Altai Mountains, which is a region that's situated on the border of Russia, China, Mongolia, and Kazakhstan. And uh, they were met by a sage that revealed to them that uh, Shambhala would reveal itself to humanity when it was ready and led them down to a, an underground tunnel, uh, which was blocked up by uh, carefully crafted and ornate blocks. Okay. So this was some kind of entrance that used to exist and they blocked it up. Um, so he was shown this and said, well, you know, you can't go down there, but when they're ready, they will show themselves to humanity. Um, another interesting aspect of this trek was that they were also shadowed by U.S., British, and Soviet spies the whole time they were down there. Mm, you don't say. So, um, and this story actually comes from uh, one of the channels that I had mentioned previously, Mr. Mythos. Um, okay. Definitely check out his, he goes into a lot more detail into this. So, I'm, I'm just trying to cover a lot of information shortly, so I don't want to get too deep into it. Yeah. Um, but this is 1925, so they're looking for this kind of stuff back then. And this is a precursor to uh, what happens later when we get into the Nazis and the, the Annan Air Bay and all of the stuff they were into. <clears throat> so getting back to the technological trail, mm-hmm. uh, we come back to 1927. And in 1927, the Soviets created a corporation called the Amtorg Trading Corporation, um, its headquarters was in New York, but they also had an office in Chicago, uh, San Francisco, and I believe somewhere in Washington State. Um, I'm not entirely sure where it was there, but I believe there was one there. Okay. Uh, but the important one was New York. Now, publicly, this trading corporation was established to strike up trade deals with American corporations. You know, at the time, we were a industrial powerhouse. Absolutely. Like, we, we built everything. And mm-hmm. so the Soviets really wanted in on that. But behind the scenes, the Antwerp Trading Corporation was essentially a Soviet spy hub. Right. It was used for espionage, corporate espionage, uh, you know, getting secrets from people, um, you know, get, getting jobs within these corporations and stealing secrets, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, incidentally, it turns out that the Antwerp Trading Corporation was located one and a half miles from Nikola Tesla's lab in New York City. Mm. so if you know anything about nikola tesla you know some of the stuff he was into you know he was famous for the ac generator but not only the ac generator he created a lot of other let's say military um 
some 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 things that the military would be extremely interested in getting their hands on apparatuses. <laughs> yes, extremely interesting military apparatus. <laughs> Just um, say that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but um, the United States at the time, like I said, we were an industrial powerhouse, but we weren't the military powerhouse that we are today. In right. fact. After after World War One, we were done with war. We didn't want to deal with war anymore. We were done. Um, we we didn't have the military industrial complex that we have today. Uh, we don't. We didn't have uh, you know the CIA and a lot of the intelligence communities that we have today. We had some, but it wasn't uh, it definitely not what we have today. Right, and and that's a lot of time. And just <clears throat> so I can if I can add, add some in. Remember, every other major first world country that was able to build and, and create heavy things was just wrecked by war, right? So, oh, yeah. uh, you know, they were trying to rebuild and, and here we are, you know, not very touched, able to say, well, we'll start to build industrial, we'll start to build steel companies, we'll start to do this and ship it to you. So it was a, it was a, a big boom for us to now focus on industrial revolution and providing you know, rebuilding the countries that were wrecked. Yeah, you're exactly right because, you know, because we were so untouched by the the First World War, you know, we were manufacturing and helping right. to rebuild Europe at that time. Right. Um, so, you know, that's that's the way we became a superpower, really. Yep, absolutely. Uh, but um, so in talking about this uh, Amtorg Trading Corporation and Nikola Tesla, we get to uh, when Nikola Tesla claimed to have invented a technology he called Teleforce. And what this technology did, or what he claimed that it would do, is it would it would give you the ability to build a force field around any object, say a vehicle, a building. And he claimed that even entire countries could be enveloped by this teleforce field to protect them from war. You know, it was Nikola Tesla's idea that, you know, instead of something like an atomic bomb, uh, you know, like we use today as our as our you know ace in the hole to right. keep us safe, right? That's mm -hmm. that's what every country with with nuclear arms really wants. His idea was to just create a big force field around your country and say, well, you can't get you know you you can't attack us. <clears throat> so he went to the usual suspects, J.P. Morgan, Westinghouse, a couple of other people to try to fund this because um, if you don't know anything about Nikola Tesla, he was an incredibly nice guy, but he was bad with money. Yeah. Terrible with money. Um, so, you know, after getting discouraged from all of his usual financiers, because like I said, after the AC generator, you know, they were done with Tesla. They were like, we're making, we're making millions off of this, right. you know, this idea. We don't, we don't want any of his other ideas because they might take away from that. Um, so, uh, just like, uh, the guy that was trying to invent the first dirigible, uh, Tesla went to the Soviets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ouch. <clears throat> so he walked down the street one and a half miles. And, and this is nothing, you know, to say anything about, uh, you know, Nikola Tesla's belief in, in you know, or, or uh, patriotism or anything like that. He, he wasn't a – he didn't believe in anybody's ideology. He's, he's just an inventor, right? Right. Uh, so he, he heads down there and he supplies the plans, specifications, and blueprints for this Teleforce technology for a grand total of $25,000. Ouch. Which in today's dollars, that's half a million. So yeah. a pretty good lump sum for for him. Yeah. Uh, but here's the thing about the Soviets: when Stalin took over, there was this uh, 
a massive push to persecute science, in particular genetics. Uh, so they were going after geneticists and putting them in gulags. I, I don't exactly remember what the thought process was behind this uh, or why they went after geneticists the way they did. But all of the other scientists in the Soviet Union looked at this and were like, okay, who's we don't want to be next. Mm-hmm. So most of them immigrated to Germany because <clears throat> Germany at the time, you know, even after World War I, um, they were – I want to say arguably the most advanced society on planet earth at the time. Yes. Yep. Because they had advanced architecture. Their art was astounding. Their music was astounding. Um, You know, they, they had all of the scientists, you know, in Europe and in Russia, you know, flocking to Germany to, you know, uh, work with other German scientists to, you know, create all these different technologies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even if you look at uh, things like, you know, even if the not, you know, the Nazis kind of ruined all of that, but when they took over, if you look at, even if you look at like a Nazi general versus like a United States general and look at how they're dressed, like the Nazis look good. Like Mm -hmm. they were, you know, they were very, uh, a very high society at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of, you know, the Germans kind of had this supremacy factor uh, kind of rolling in the background during right. this time. Right. And, which and, kind of, and Hitler pushed a couple. I mean, <clears throat> what he was doing with the Autobahn, what he was creating and, and you know, agri- like you said, he was big on, on bringing in good architects and things like that. And he, huge believer in, you know, paranormal and seeking down things also. But they were dominant in that in architecture, like you said, architecture, the Autobahn. Um, and I've been on the Autobahn. I, I, I you know, just real quick. I, my, I visited a friend uh, when I was out of high school, stayed with him for a month. And I'm, you know, his grandma picked us up and here we are doing like 140 miles an hour. And I'm like, oh, my God. Uh, but that's <laughs> what the roads were designed to do. So. Yeah, that's that's an awesome, awesome interstate system that they mm-hmm. have over there. That's that's really awesome what they did. Um, and, and we followed suit after, you know, the war. We, we did the same thing. Right. Um, but yeah, so uh, the point here is that the Soviets lacked the scientific community, the scientific manpower to take all of this stuff that they were getting through espionage tactics and actually put them to use. So they mm-hmm. had all of this info, but no outlet for it. Um, so they, they kind of stockpiled information at this point. Right. So now we're going to turn to the Nazis and, ha- and when yep. they got started. So, you know, in 1933, Hitler took over as chancellor of Germany and that kind of got the Nazis, you know, they took over and they established what was called the Ananerbe. And it was established by Heinrich Himmler. And it was meant to be an elite think tank for the Nazi party. And, you know, they were, this is the one that promoted racial doctrines. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the German people descended from the Aryan race who were tall, blonde, and from Northern Europe. Um, <clears throat> all the SS were members. They would put out publications uh, in magazines when they would go out and do archaeological digs uh, because – all of this, um, you know, all of this looting that they did of all these different artifacts from all these different countries uh, was uh, publicly to kind of prove that the Germans were, you know, a superior race to everybody else. That's that's right. what publicly they were trying to do. They were trying to to uh, um, get this kind of German nationalism thing going, um, German national patriotism about their race. That's that's what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> In secret, they were searching. Again, just like Nicholas Rourke, they were searching for this Aryan race because they believed that they still existed and were hiding deep in the caves of Tibet. So they would send out parties to go, you know, basically to 
uh, go on the same trek that Nicholas Rourke did. They went to Tibet. They went to uh, um, they even went to um, uh, there's a, a story out of the country of Georgia, um, you know, out there in the Caucasus Mountains that uh, there was an operation called Operation uh, Edelweiss where uh, there was a German regiment that went out there with an, and an air priest to uh, Mount Elbrus, which is the highest peak out there, mm-hmm. to conduct ceremonies and search for this, this entrance, which is interesting because, you know, um, uh, white people are attributed to coming from the Caucasus, Caucasus Mountains. That's why they call them Caucasian, right? Okay. I did not know that, that, okay. okay, that's 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 where that term comes from. You know, Caucasian comes from the Caucasus Mountains. So that's you know that was another lead that they were trying to find the Aryan race there. Okay. They believed that they were there. So there there was a a, a story about that. Um, so that's kind of what the Ananerbe was doing at the time. They were into all the different woo subjects. They were you know, um, you know, uh, Hitler had astrologers and and all this this kinds of thing that were helping with the war effort and and in finding this race because I believe what they were trying to do is to find this race to help them win the war. I think that was what they were trying to do. Um, you know, they were trying to get technology to win the war. Mm. That's that, and they believe that that the Aryan mm. race that they call it had the temp, uh, futuristic technology that could technically help them win. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And they, they got all of these ideas through what was going on in the theosophic movement in the late 18, 1890s and the early 1900s. Um, this is kind of where they got all of that information from, as well as, uh, you know, there were newer people on the stage, especially in Germany, who were uh, into a lot of that stuff, including Heinrich, Heinrich Himmler himself. Um, you know, they were conducting all kinds of doing all kinds of weird stuff. Um, you know, uh, um, they were using uh, psychics. Uh, they were studying telekinesis and all of that stuff. Some of the stuff that we hear about, like Soviet Cold War kind of stuff that right. they were doing. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll understand why the Soviets were doing that kind of uh, stuff later on here. OK, <clears throat> but I, I, I'd like to go ahead and go to 1937 when we talk about the Horton brothers. And this is Walter and uh, Raymar Horton, and they were um, they were uh, aerospace engineers of Germany, basically at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of got started in the in flying gliders in these clubs. So Germans were all about these aero clubs um, because after World War One, they weren't allowed to have an air force, and they were limited in their production of aircraft. Right. Um, so they had a lot of glider clubs. They'd build these gliders and fly them off of hills and mountains and stuff like that. Uh, but in uh, 1937, they invented or, or created the first jet-powered flying wing called the HO-229. Um, this is, uh, like I said, the first jet-powered flying wing, and it was capable of speeds of up to 500 miles per hour in trials. Um, now, I don't know if that means that they actually flew it that fast or if they had a wind tunnel or if they just did right. some math to try to figure it out. Um, but it was estimated that it would go this fast. And remember, this is 1937. Yeah, that's fast. Um, but they had trouble attaining turbojet engines because the turbojet engine had just been invented and was just being implemented in in some of the aircraft that they already had that they knew would fly that they were trying to use for the war effort. Mm-hmm. Um, so eventually it turned out that the HO-229 design was just too late to help with the war effort. Right. Um, so it was, uh, you know, it was found by the Allies after the war was over. <clears throat> And then, um, so this is 1937. Yeah. In 1938, I, I know we talked about Orson or uh, H.G. Wells' book, War of the Worlds. Yeah. 
1938, the night before Halloween, this is when the War of the Worlds broadcast by Orson Welles happens. Right. Um, and in doing research for this, I, I, at first I was like, wait a minute, is H.G. Wells and Orson Welles, are they related? Is that his son, grandson? Is it, no, they're not related at all, which I found interesting. Right. Um, but anyway, so if anybody knows about this this famous broadcast, it scared a lot of people. It was not um, it was not put on the air, and and uh, um, it, it was basically put on the air as a news broadcast, not a, some kind of fictitious story or anything. Um, you know, they didn't warn anybody about any. They just went with it, and this scared a lot of people. There were people in New Jersey that actually formed posses together, and they got out and started shooting their own water towers because they thought they were they were these tripods that they were talking about. Yeah, and, um, and just so everybody knows, if, if you haven't listened, this was back when radio was huge. I mean, people would sit around the radio, listen to the news, and the radio was always going because this was, you know, one of the ways that people got information, right? And all of a sudden, oh, yeah. over the air comes, we're being attacked by aliens, by, you know, as a news broadcast. And it it truly created um, anxiety and, and in the people that were list, that were, you know, sitting by the radio for their information, for their news, for everything. You know, that's what life revolved around at that time. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was that was the television back then. Right. Or yeah, the Internet as right. it is now. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, but I think it's important to point that out, that that's in 1938. We have that happening. So this this is kind of a continuation of the idea that there's there's this idea of aliens that can invade Earth. That's mm -hmm. you know, that's the point I'm making here. So uh, now we get to World War Two. World War Two began in 1939. And here we're talking in 1942. Now, a lot of people have heard about the Foo Fighters, right? The yeah. uh the uh, 417th Night Fighter squ Squadron over France seeing the Foo Fighters in 1944. But what a lot of people don't know is the RAF sightings that happened in 1942 no. over northern Italy. Let's do what, – what were the Foo Fighters? Okay, so the Foo Fighters were um, – I'll go ahead and cover that. Uh, this happened in 1944, and it was the 417th Night Fighter Squadron that started seeing these orbs um, that were tracking them, following them, flying around in the sky – and uh, the term Foo Fighter actually comes from, I think, a cartoon character that existed back then. Uh, I think it was called Foo, and it was just a kind of a dumb name. It was just, you know, Fooey, Foo, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, I think uh, 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 software developers still use that today to, to refer to nothing. You know, if, if they got some code, they're trying to, you know, put something, they'll put Foo. So mm. it's just kind of a nothing term. Okay. Um, so they called them Foo Fighters. And... Uh, they claimed that these were ger German secret weapons. This is what the United States intelligence community thought it was when they first started hearing about this. Um, obviously, they must have had some other information that led them to that conclusion other than just, you know, the war was going on and this was who their adversary was. Um, but like I said, in 1942, uh, the, R the RAF, the Royal Air Force, um, spotted a bright white light that arose from the ground and ascended 8,000 feet. And this is in northern Italy. It flew level for two minutes. It had periodic bursts of light that was followed by a direction change. And they estimated it to be two to 300 feet in length and was traveling at an estimated 500 miles per hour. Hmm. So this is in 1942 that these sightings occurred. And in the same year is when we have Battle of Los Angeles. If you've ever heard about that that occurred, um, it was uh, – uh, 
reportedly a, a false alarm that was caused in in Los Angeles to cause all the air raid sirens to go off and and all of our military just started firing at these objects in the sky. Uh, they didn't know what they were, but they assumed that it was some kind of enemy invasion. Um, now it's you know it's it's controversial in that nobody really knows whether or not there were actual objects up there, but there was a lot of claims that there were these these balloons that were up there, not necessarily balloon, but some kind of craft that was up in the sky that they right. were shooting at. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the same year that the RAF sightings happened. Um, so in 1943, so this is a year after that, mm-hmm. uh, we jumped from. Um, some of the UFO sightings to the technology again. And this time we're talking about January 7th, 1943. And this is the day that Nikola Tesla passed away. Okay. Um, so, and there's an interesting dynamic here um, where I don't know if you know. Um, so the uncle of Donald Trump, John G. Trump was an electrical engineer of the day. And uh, he you know, he was in kind of that intellectual wave with Tesla, with, uh, you know, Edison and Steinmetz and some of these other electrical engineers. And uh, Tesla actually publicly humiliated him quite a few times over his static electric experiments for working with uh, Van de Graaff generators. Those are those uh, uh, things as a rubber band that runs around a wheel and then it has that big ball on the top and you can touch it and make your hair stand up. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So, so John G. Trump was working with these and, uh, Nikola Tesla was, uh, you know, he invented the the Tesla coil. And right. what the Tesla coil did was the exact same thing, but more efficiently, and it would create a lot more power. So like a, a Van de Graaff generator is only capable of a few thousand volts. Um, and a Tesla coil can go up to millions of volts. Right. So, you know, Tesla was kind of, you know, making fun of the guy saying, hey, why are you still messing around with this stupid stuff? What I've already invented works a heck of a lot better and a lot more efficient, you know? And so I'm sure, you know, Trump didn't take that, uh, you know, there was a rivalry going on. So he didn't like Tesla too much for that. So when Tesla died, he died in his apartment. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, one or two days later, there were three parties that showed up. There was John G. Trump with the newly created Office of Alien Affairs, and this office was uh, designed because of the war to make sure that there weren't any military secrets that got out. Um, so they were extremely interested in what Tesla had come up with. Because remember, before Tesla was trying to get you know financing for this right. stuff, and and the the infrastructure wasn't there. Well, now the infrastructure in, infrastructure for that is being built, and now they're interested. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So they come in. The FBI. The FBI comes in, which is interesting because you know the FBI doesn't usually come in on a murder case or a not murder case. Sorry, but uh, right. someone just passing Correct. away. Yeah. And Tesla's family members, who whose homeland of Serbia had just been invaded by the Nazis, so they were coming at the behest of the Nazi Party to come try to see if they could collect any information that they could from Nikola Tesla's belongings. So after all was said and done, John G. Trump, the head of the Office of Alien Affairs, removed 40-plus trunks from Nikola Tesla's apartment and his labs, which I don't don't know if he had a lab then. I think it was just in his apartment. So 40-plus trunks of papers, writings, um, apparatus that he had built, um, plans, blueprints, all of that stuff, and took Mm -hmm. them back to MIT. And this is where the Nikola Tesla story ends. All of his stuff ends up in this black hole of the newly created military industrial complex. Mm. 
Now, later, John G. Trump would come out and proclaim that nothing of military significance was found. And I call bull on that. Of course. <clears throat> yep, nothing to see here. Move along. Move along. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. All right. So <laughs> this, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like, we, we know Nikola Tesla had a lot of stuff that he talked about at dinner parties. And, and right. a lot of people thought he was a kook. And he was he was a showman for sure. Like, he loved showing off his stuff. And, and like, the, the time he had the radio-controlled submarine and he made the crowd think that they were moving it with their mind and stuff like that. So he was a showman, right? Right. But, uh, you know, the people kind of took him as a kook uh, later later on in his life. Um but he was serious. He had some really good stuff. He was he was a he was a visionary for sure, and that Absolutely. that would be a whole show in itself. So I'll mm-hmm. I'll, I'll move on from this. Okay. Um. So that was January seventh, nineteen forty three. So in November, something interesting happens in Germany. Uh, there was this project Rice or Reese that uh, Hitler conducted, where he moved all of his production facilities, including all of his research facilities, to Poland. Now remember, they invaded Poland, right? Right. And during this time, after they invaded Poland, they kind of had a handshake agreement with Stalin that, hey, you know, we won't invade you if you won't invade us. And they were like, okay. So they weren't worried about the Russians. They were worried about the Allies bombing their facility. So they moved them over to Poland. Mm -hmm. Um, So they moved all of this stuff. They created an underground network complex there. Um, They were doing all kinds of stuff. They they were getting ready to really dig in in Poland if if, if things got really bad. Right. so from 1943, we moved to 1944 when the Foo Fighters were, were being spotted now. So a year after that Project Rice started, now remember, this is the era where we get Project, uh, the um, uh, Deglaka, the bell. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've heard about the, the story of the Nazi bell that they created. I have not. Okay, so the Glocka is, um, this is another controversial thing because there's not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of physical evidence to back this up, but there are a lot of uh, witnesses from Poland that came forward talking about this bell that the Nazis had had created and that it was capable of levitation. So this is where kind of the Nazi UFO theory comes from, is from this initial Deglaka project that they were working on. Okay. So at some point, and, and this is my speculation, at some point between the Ananerbe being established and going all over the world trying to find this underground society, we get the Deglaka project, where they were reportedly using some kind of swirling mercury engines to, to lift this thing off of the ground. And either A, they found some kind of archaeological evidence to give them an idea of how this works and how to construct it, or they found what they were looking for and were given the plans and blueprints to try to construct something like this. Then right. that's my speculation. Either way, and this it, is something was found. Exactly. And at this point, the technology was there for a remote drone. So we had the CRT tube that was invented by the Germans uh, way before this. I, um, trying to see if I can look up when that happened. Okay. So that was 1897. Uh, that the cathode ray tube was invented by the Germans. So the tube that's responsible for television later on was invented by the Germans in 1897. Wow. Um, they had radio, right? Because yes. uh, Nikola Tesla and Marconi fought over the radio patent. Um, also, the Soviets at the same time were using radio uh, too. Like Nikola Tesla wasn't the only guy in town. Like there, there was, like I said, an intellectual wave. There was a guy in uh, the Soviet Union, uh, Nikolai Pilchikov. A lot of people don't know about him, but he was the Nikola Tesla of the Soviet Union. He was doing the same stuff. In fact, the same year Nikola Tesla was showing off his remote control boat, uh, 
this guy was showing off a remote controlled tank for the Russian army. Mm. So, you know, there's, there's a lot going on in the world, uh, at this time. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, the Foo Fighters, uh, in my mind would make sense that they were remote drones that were operated by Germans for, for, uh, observation reasons to see who was who up in the sky. Right. So they were launching these things up. They had, they were radio controlled. They had televisions, you know, that they could see, you know, like uh, CCTV equipment, you know, a really primitive version of it. Right. So that they could see up there what was going on. And, and like I said, that's my speculation, but it makes sense because all the technology is there. If, if the Glocka, um, is something that they did build and had figured out, then right. they would have been able to figure this out, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so after 1944, we get to the end of World War II, and this, the Germans are defeated. Uh, they're, they're too late to the game on this technological race that they're fighting, um, and they end up losing the war. So the Allies pushed into Germ- Germany up to Berlin, and basically, you know, ransacked everything, raided, you know, they sent all of their, their intelligence officers in there to grab everything they could. Well, what was sitting in Poland at the time? Because the Soviets had just invaded Poland and ran in there and ransacked all of those production and research facilities that Hitler had just moved. So the Soviets got a hold of not only more scientists, but more information regarding their secret projects. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is that, that, yeah. Okay. So in 1945, we conducted Operation Paperclip, which a lot of people have heard of, yes. um, where we got 1,600 German scientists to come over to the United States and work on projects like NASA, the uh, nuclear energy, uh, laser um, uh, laser technology, because that's what we were interested in. We were interested in nuclear energy and laser technology. Mm-hmm. Well, the Soviets had an operation called Operation Osa, Osa Viakim, I think is what it was called, the same year. They got 2,500 German scientists. Mm. They got the Nazi facilities because they didn't have to build any facilities. They right. were already there. They just had to come in and take over. Right. That's all they had to do. So it fell under Soviet control, and eventually Warsaw, Poland, became the premier Soviet production hub based on all of the stuff that was already existing there. Because, you know, the Soviets, Soviets being communist, they they had you know they, they kind of lacked in like I said they lacked in scientists they lacked in uh, you know producing uh, factories for producing things because you know in the, uh, under communism it's kind of hard to do some of this stuff because it's so uh, you know planned right and, so and also you know communism it doesn't give you incentive to be better than anybody else right it, there's no right. real incentive you're chosen hey you you're gonna go pick up trash got it. So you're not really, you know, scientists need to be, it's a different breed, you know, you don't know yeah. the education of somebody. And sometimes they pretend like they're not that smart because they don't want to be, you know, put into certain situations. Yes. And they don't want to be put into a situation where if they don't pull through, they end up in a gulag. So Correct. You know, that's <laughs> that's why a lot of them fled to Germany uh, before the war got started. Correct. But now, but now those scientists that had uh, fled Russia to Germany have now been uh, occupied by Soviet control once again. So... Um, like I said, it, it became a Soviet production hub and they had all of the research. They had all of this and not only uh, that, but all of the espionage research they had been sandbagging since the 1920s from the United States and probably other countries as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now they had the scientific manpower to be able to make some of these things a reality. And this is where we get into some really interesting stuff. 
because uh, in 1947, June of 1947, uh, a guy by the name of Kenneth Arnold, not everybody knows about him, uh, but he was an um, uh, airplane pilot flying over Mount Rainier, Washington. I believe he was searching for a downed aircraft or helping to search for downed aircraft when he spotted a, uh, a fleet of craft seen skipping across the sky like saucers. And he estimated their speed to be about a thousand miles per hour. Wow. That's so he's yeah. So he saw a fleet of these things skipping. Now this is where we get the term flying saucer. And I want to be specific here that he didn't say that they were saucer shaped. In fact, he had. Um, I sent you a picture of the drawing that he made of his sighting of what they looked like. And if you look at this craft, it resembles a heavily modified Horton HO two two nine design. So this is ten years after the Horton brothers had designed this craft. And remember, the, the, you know, it came too late for the war effort for the Nazis, but once right. the Soviets got control of those production facilities, they came across this stuff and were like, hmm, what can we do with this with our newly acquired knowledge and, and power and scientific uh, yeah. power? And this is where we get into, um, you know, uh, one month after that, that's when the Roswell crash occurred. Hmm. And uh, hmm. the Roswell crash, uh, if nobody knows, it, it occurred near Walker Air Force Base, which was home of the 509th Composite Group, which was an atomic warfare division. This is where all the atomic weapons were kept at the time. Um, you know, for the, they had a you know they they did uh, practice flights, practice bombings, and they they actually kept atomic weapons there. So this aircraft was, or this craft, I should say, was coming very close to this base. Mm -hmm. um, now, whether it uh, was shot down or whether, you know, what happened to it to cause it to crash, I don't know. Right. But what's interesting is uh, a woman by the name of Annie Jacobson, who's come out here in recent years, uh, has made the claim that she was talking to uh, an, a former EG&G engineer who was essentially on his deathbed. And he was ready to give a deathbed confession. And she just happened to be able to get that exclusive story. Mm -hmm. And he goes on to tell her that Stalin had gotten a hold of this technology and was building these, these uh, UFOs in order to harass the United States and make them think that there was an alien invasion, that there was an alien invasion coming to America. That was the whole point. Stalin wanted to terrorize the United States with them. And he did a pretty good job because yeah. that's exactly what happened after this crash occurred. And a year after that, so that's when uh, Project Sign comes out, uh, which originally was called Project Saucer, but they changed it to Project Sign. And, of course, that was established by Air Force General uh, Nathan Farragut Twinning. He has kind of a funny name. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, but, you know, that was a project to collect all of the information related to UFO sightings for national security reasons. And the reason they were doing this is because, um, and this is this is kind of, I, I believe this is Annie Jacobson's speculation, is that the United States didn't realize what the Soviet Union had gotten a hold of after World War II. Like, we thought we, we got the creme de la creme of the scientists from Germany, and maybe we did to a certain degree as far as, as atomic weaponry and some other things go. Right. But the Soviet Union got this uh, advanced aircraft technology, advanced radio technology, and some other technologies that have come out in recent years uh, from some of the CIA leaks and papers that they dump out every so often. Um, but it's clear that 
the Soviets were way ahead of us after World War II, and we didn't know it until, uh, until uh, Kenneth Arnold had that sighting and people started to take notice. And so, and, and when it comes to, when you think about, you know, the, the, uh, the space race between us and the Soviets, mm-hmm. you know, the, the newly created intelligence apparatus of the United States during World War II did not want the American people to know that we were that far behind. Right. And, and which we, we, and, and I hear this all the time with paperclip, right? People are like, oh, it's 1600. The, these scientists are going someplace. So it, they're, it, you want them to come to a place that, you don't want to go to to your enemy, right? You don't want to send the smartest people in the world to your enemy if you can't. Right. right? You want exactly. them to come here. You want them to work for you. You want them to to be a part of that. And actually, when when Operation Paperclip and all of that went down, we were still allies with Russia. It wasn't until shortly after that that Russia turned the tables on us. Yeah, but you're always still thinking, right? You, when it comes to other countries, you're always, you know, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer, right? Oh, the yeah. Type thing oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They definitely had that mentality. But do, do you think, and, and maybe this is the possibility, is that what we thought was advanced technology and important technology being you know, nuclear and things like that might have been, not have been the technology that was the most advanced at the time. Is what you're saying? It, the most advanced technology could have been, you know, the, the jet engines and different types of flying and things like that. That we just they were, you know, they were like, yeah, you can have the nuclear stuff. That's no big deal if we're using this, right? Uh, oh yeah, and of course, you know, later on they they ended up getting the nuclear secrets anyway. So it wasn't like you know we we were holding all the cards from from the standpoint of of Stalin. You know, he had he had a lot of cards in his hand, and he just didn't want everybody to know. Right. And so, so you've got this technology, you've got this alien, you've got back, you know, World War One that they're saying, look, if you want to unite, you want to create a new world order, you want to create something where all the worlds can get together and all the people. And that was a big thing. Remember, this is how, you know, the CIA, one of the things that the CIA teaches, um, because I, you know, I, I've done research into this, let's just say, um, is that if you nothing brings the people together like something like 9-11 nothing brings the people together like something like pearl harbor right you want to bring the american people together it's that type of uh attack that type of reaction that says oh really i mean during 9-11 you had people that were in world war two that basically said where do i sign up <laughs> it's like whoa <laughs> right you right, hang on yeah. there um and the mindset is, if the whole world was attacked, everyone would step up. Everyone would get on the same page. Everyone would say, okay, yes, you know, let's, let's do this one world. Let's all join together. Well, if we're all going to join together, then maybe we need central bank digital currency. Maybe we need one dollar, you know, to, to make sure that we're all on the same page. Is this kind of the mindset you believe they're going with now with this? Oh, yes. And I'll, I'll explain it uh, here. And, and I, I kind of wanted to end with this. Um, in 1967, there was a report uh, called the Report from Iron Mountain. And uh, I don't remember the exact story how this came out. This was actually meant to be a, a intelligence uh, kind of internal document that was created by a group of um, individuals who were experts in their field, philosophy, science, um, histor- history, um, sociology, things of that nature, and they brought them together to this place at Iron Mountain to kind of make a report. And the report was 
essentially, essentially, the idea was this: uh, was the possibility and desirability of peace. And if you read through the p- report, it kind of, you know, at the end of World War II, you know, we were the dominant superpower that came out of that. Right. So what happens when the world, uh, you know, what, what what happens when peace breaks out? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, where does the United States stand if there's nothing for their massive military to go after? Right. Right. So that's kind of what this this report was was uh, trying to conclude as to where the United States stands in a world of peace. And uh, it was written in 1967. And one of the men who were part of that report was uh, alarmed at some of the conclusions that they came to. And ultimately that this was going to be, you know, this was going to be kept secret. This wasn't going to be publicized. So he managed to leak it uh, through whoever his sources were. And that's how we're able to read this today. And on page 51 of this report, it states this. Credibility, in fact, lies at the heart of the problem of developing a political substitute for war. This is where the space race proposals, in many ways so well suited as economic substitutes for war, fall short. The most ambitious and unrealistic space project cannot of itself generate a believable external menace. It has been hotly argued that uh, such a menace would offer the last best hope of peace by uniting mankind against the danger of destruction by creatures from other planets or from outer space. Experiments have been proposed to test the credibility of an out-of-our-world invasion threat. It is possible that a few of the more difficult-to-explain flying saucer incidents of recent years were, in fact, early experiments of this kind. If so, they could hardly have been judged encouraging. We anticipate no difficulties in making a need for a giant superspace program credible for economic purposes, even were there not ample precedent uh, extending it. For political purposes, to include features unfortunately associated with science fiction would obviously be a more dubious undertaking. Um, let's see, it continues on. Nevertheless, the, an effective political substitute for war would require alternate enemies, some of which might seem equally far-fetched in the context of current war systems. Um, it may be, for instance, that gross pollution of the environment can eventually replace the possibility of mass destruction by nuclear weapons as the principal apparent threat to the survival of the species. Poisoning of the air and the principal sources of food and water supply is already well advanced. At first glance, it would seem promising in this respect. <clears throat> it constitutes a threat that can be dealt with only through social, organizational, and political power. But from present indications, it will be a generation to a generation and a half before environmental pollution, however severe, will be sufficiently menacing on a global scale to offer a possible basis for a solution. So we see where this is going. English, Ben. Translate that for us. So what we're saying is, is if the nuclear threat or the threat of some other country invading isn't good enough, then we're going to come up with a fantastic enemy from outer space that's going to do it. So basically, just don't touch off. So <clears throat> it's telling kids that the boogeyman's going to get you if you're not a good per- if you're not good and you don't go to bed and stuff like that. Basically, exactly, exactly. And if uh, the outrageous. Uh, external threat that we create doesn't work, then we're going to use environmental pollution to uh, uh, to use as the menace that will unite us. 
So either way, their their trump cards are alien invasion or uh, environmental disaster. Mm. And that and the that was nineteen sixty seven. You said yes, nineteen sixty seven. And I believe, I believe, and let me look this up. This might be another show in nineteen sixty eight. I want to say I'll have to look that up. Uh, the Think tank, the um, limits to growth was put together. Are you familiar with that? Um, no, I'm not. Actually. Okay, so what the limits to growth was, it was actually put together by what we know now as the World Economic Forum, and uh, it was called it was for the the Club of Rome at the time. So what they did is they took a bunch of MIT people, and and even a computer of the time, and they put together a think tank, and they said we want you guys to go in there with the five bases of life. And for for life to exist. Right. So you need um, obviously populations, a factor resources is a factor. Money's a factor. Um, pollution, uh, you know, is a factor. And I can't think of the last one, but we'll do a show on it. But basically what they said is take all of these categories and start sticking them into different charts and tell me what happens with, you know, let's say we have too much population. Let's say we, we don't we have, you know, oh, I'm sorry, food. Yeah. Um, and they basically ran all of these programs, right, and sat down with it, and every single one failed. By, not, by 2030, approximately, that area, um, the popul- we would, we would, it would be over. We'd be, we basically, everyone would fail. So if you have more population, well, you need more food. If you need more food, you have to take the land, and instead of digging resources, you have to plant food on it. So you can't dig more resources. But those people are now buying more things. So you need more resources to make more things. So now you have less food. So it's a constant shift of these materials, right? You have more mm-hmm. people and that means you have more pollution. So you need more land to get rid of the, you know, get rid of all of the dumps and trash and stuff like that. Right. Um, and the same thing, it kind of goes. So the only way, the only way the system worked according to the 19, uh, it's called limits to growth. It is if you control the population and the money. That's the only way. Because if everybody's buying what they want, you need more land, you, then you need and the more you know, money they get, the more f- population they get, the more food they need, and so on and so on and so on. So you have multiple things going on. One piece and the other one, how do we control the population? And it makes sense because if you have peace, you have no war, so you, you won't, don't have mass <clears throat> death, right? But yeah, you also yeah. need to do, okay, so if we're going to have these people, what do we need to do to keep an equal level of things uh, in regards to the, you know, the, those things? And that's something I, I'll, I'll shoot you the, the resource on it, or you can look, at, look that up. So that's, well, that's yeah. very interesting. And, and if you're going to do something like that, you also have to maintain control. And that control is going to come technologically. It's going to be coming from a technologically superior race that they're going to throw in your face at some point in the future if, if, if they cannot come up with a substitute. Right. And that's, we're now at a point that eventually you grow up and you say, hey, mom, there's no boogeyman. You're lying. Right. And right. when there's no boogeyman to keep you in check, <laughs> And to keep you following the path that they want you on, what's the next boogeyman, right? What's the next level of, of scare tactic or positioning tactic to keep you in the groove? And, and it sounds like 
So what you're basically saying is, where are we at now? Are we, because right now we know they're looking for, you know, climate and things like that. I, I, are you saying they're doing both? You think they're trying to still say, "Hey, here's, here's your alien situation." I think that uh, the the climate, the the portion that you're talking about, you know, with regards to controlling the population, is kind of a, a later date stage. They mm-hmm. they need to establish control first, and I believe that's happening with this disclosure movement that's happening because this is like third or fourth wave ufo mania that's going on right now right um and so they're slowly leaking this stuff out and and you know they're they're telling you that there are extraterrestrials involved and and they're the ones that have this advanced technology and i'm not and to be clear i'm not saying that there aren't extraterrestrials i'm just saying that when it comes to our earth um you know, we're dealing with something something different. We're we're dealing with something earth based. Now, whether that be humans coming up with this technology, or like I say in some of the other videos, this ancient civilization that still exists underground with this technology, or a combination of the two, there are people in the shadows who are going to use this technology to bring us under control. Right. Right. And and that's and and I think and this is what I talk about too. Like control is is extremely important in, in regards to things. It when okay. Technology, I talk about this a little bit. Communism was extremely difficult to enforce because he did not like I talk about Mao, right? Mao did not have the reach. Yeah. He couldn't reach out and touch everyone. Well, technology allows you to reach out and touch everyone. Oh, right? Yeah. Okay. I mean, if Mao had central bank digital currency, cameras, uh, facial recognition, uh, uh, you know, oh my God, oh my God, right? He could yeah. reach out and touch everyone and you take a Mao in there, uh, holy crap, right? We don't, you don't oh, yeah. know how far that would have went, but there were eventually people that, you know, he couldn't control, he couldn't, re- he tried and things like that, but eventually people, you know, things happen, right? So, how do you do it without that Maoish attack, that Maoish approach, right? China, obviously, they're doing it with, you know, um, social me- uh, media and things like that. But it's a tighter, it's a lighter touch over here, right? Because we, we do kick back so much, right? Well, you, you, you know, I would throw in just kind of the idea that, uh, you know, being a population, looking at a leader who's being tyrannical, the best way to fix that is to not have something you can attack, right? right? So let's talk about things like AI taking over control of things of government. Let's let's talk about AI making decisions, something that we can't directly attack. You know, we we can't point to a person and say, "Hey, let's get him, hang him." You know, that's that, that's the guy we're after because he's being tyrannical. But if you take that to you know an AI level, that, that gets a little bit more difficult to attack. So you're thinking the government coming out is, and I hate when, when, when everybody says, because of, of everything's a distraction, right? And everything's not, right? Sometimes it's a, yeah. it's a news story. But this is more of something that's not just a distraction to take you away from specific events. It's one for you to kind of focus more on the, the alien aspect of it or the extraterrestrial aspect, aspect of it. So that you're not, you know, so that eventually you were same team, same team. We're all on the same team because we're not on that team. Right. Is that kind of the look? 
and yeah, yeah, and and it's uh, again, it's remember we're dealing with the United States, and one of the things I remember reading when uh, during the Revolutionary War was a French general that basically said, Here, "Here's the gist. I'm not gonna. I don't have all my." Ben's way better at this than I am, just so everybody knows, because he brings, you know, footnotes and everything. But the gist of it for me was when the generals came over to help the United States and the militia and things like that, the French generals would say, okay, go do this. And the French soldiers would just do it. Well, the militia would say, "Uh, why are we doing this? And he was shocked at the fact that the questioning of of the American people and the people over here would dare question a general or dare, you know, do any of this. Now, they eventually they listened, but it was the fact that they it was a different mindset over here, right? People had a different mindset. We want to know why. Right. And, and, and so if you come over and you just say, do this because I said so, eh, that don't go well with us, right? It just, it's just not in, our, it's not in our bloodlines for us to just to be told. But you say, you redirect and it's because of this now you can kind of get people to possibly fall in line and slowly you know be a part of the team the team they want you to be a part of and that's a big deal if that's what's happening the road that they're leading is us down is a very bad road if they're going to this extremes to get us there that's not good well, you got to understand too. Um, you know, I I used to listen to a guy by the name of Bill Cooper. I don't know if you've ever heard of any of his stuff. Um, he was kind of the originator of the the '90s conspiracy theory group or whatever. He was a uh, former uh, Navy intelligence officer, actually, who turned uh, to the UFO community to kind of release some of the stuff that he knew about. And he had a radio show, and on one of the radio shows, um, you know, he said something that really hit me. He was like, um, you, na- you may not believe what it is that they believe in, but you better pay attention to what they believe in because what they believe in affects you. Mm, I, say, see, I say the same thing. Like I do this all the time sometimes <clears throat> is I will say, okay, let's hypothetically speak about this and, and I'll be that, what, you know, that devil's advocate, right? And I'll say, okay, I, this is how I think they're going to approach it. And people get angry at me because, you know, they don't, you know, but it's just me trying to say, hey, um, we better prepare for this because this is what they're going to do. And we got to figure out how they're going to do it. And, and this is basically what you're saying. So let me and so hear me out. So basically, we have one whistleblower, correct? Um, I mean, that has I mean, come out recently. Yeah. The big yeah, one that we're yeah. talking about. Right, right. So the issue is, is that it's easy to get one. Right. It's easy to get one. So if 15 or 20 of them start coming out, uh oh, you know what I'm saying? Maybe. But to me, if the if this is the path we're going down, we're not we, we're not going to see any more to come in to support the one we have now. It's going to be a slow. I mean, they're going to keep it going, but it's that it, it, if it was me and I'm the government, right, I'm going to drop one in the pool. And let it affect the pool as much of the area of the pool as it possibly can, right? Mm-hmm. Until I need another one, right? I'm not putting all the chlorine in. I'm just going to put a chlorine tablet in, right? And it's that's going to take care of the pool. And I'm going to wait until that chlorine tablet dissipates. Then I'll throw another one in. And yep. that just and and that if if you wanted to do it, 
like Ben's explaining that they're doing it to to guide us into a you know the 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 route that they want us to go. That's exactly how they would do it. Is one chlorine tablet after and then until it dissipates in another one, and that's what they're doing. Yeah, and keep in mind too that this whistleblower, um, the position that he's in. Um, it really reminds me, uh, going back to the show, The X-Files, when mm-hmm. we're talking about Fox Mulder and all of the information that he was fed that was lies that he thought was true because, you know, they were feeding him this and saying, okay, this is what's going on. It's a big secret. And then he would leak it, right? right. Thinking that it's the truth when actually it's the lie that they want out to the public. Right. And that is, that's interesting. And like I said, and, and it's, once it starts to, once we, we all start to say, oh, I don't think there is, boom, next thing you know, there's more stuff. Whoa, what's this? Because right? if anybody remembers the Bob Lazar story, uh, you know, when he first came out talking about it, he was talking about, you know, he, they sat him down in this room and some guy came in front of him with all these papers and he read all these papers about the alien craft and, and you know, they, they had gotten all this stuff and they reverse engineering it. And then later on, as he got into the program, the rumor going around the office was that these were archaeologically dug up. And so, in my opinion, I believe that was the truth. And the lie was that they were of alien or, or extraterrestrial origin. From space. Extraterrestrial from space, not from, you know, here. Not, not technology. Right, right. For, right. That, that's okay. why I specify, because alien can mean, you know, somebody not from your country, right? That's right. kind of what that term means. But specifically, you know, extraterrestrial being from, from, being uh, from space, space. Right, that's what I mean. Out from there space. somewhere. Right, okay. Yeah, and I just want that's I want to specify that, too. So you... And this is, I'll tell you what, you did a great job. This is a good timeline of something for people to think about. Remember, that's what we do. This is what we're getting out there. We're getting other thought processes. You know, what's fridge today, it could be mainstream tomorrow. And we just have to, we're not, sometimes we're not, they're not giving us any help. Governments might not be there to help you. You know, like we all know the, the famous saying, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. Lock the doors. Close the windows. Um, <laughs> you know, let's move. Um, and that's that's some of the stuff we need to remember. It, true or not, like the government or not, sometimes you know they they don't make the best decisions, right? The piece, oh, yeah. the piece oh, of paper yeah. we started with with the Constitution doesn't always represent the individuals that represent that piece of paper, right? And, oh yeah. Oh and, yeah. Where they want us to go, it might not. It might be the path that they feel I can go. Well, I'll tell you what. This is this was a fantastic show, and I thank you so much for doing this one, um, and and bringing this information and doing the research. Ben, he does. Like I said, he's a huge part of the show now. Um, I'm just I'm the layman's guy that tries to break it down, and and he teaches me as we go. But he puts all this stuff together, um, and and researches it, and and you know. Put, gets to the point where he's nervous when we start the show, and by the end of the show, he's like, "Oh, I got this." And uh, but he's he do you did a great job, and I want to thank you for this one. All right, well, thank you, Sage, for all that you do. Yeah, anything. I turn the computer on. So <laughs> either way, is there anything you want to finish off on to give him some thought there? Um, I would like to say that it's important to understand that when you're talking about um, when when you think about our government, just remember that the government doesn't really know a whole lot. They're, they're kind of dumb. What's sitting underneath the government driving the wheels, that's who has all of the information. 
So just remember that, like you can't, you know, when, when we're talking about this stuff, don't point at the government and say, oh, well, it's their fault because it's not them. It's, it's what's underneath pulling the strings. So I, yeah. I would say I would leave with that thought right there. That is a huge point. And, and for me to emphasize that, uh, everybody knows that I, I, I'm in logistics and I move over dimensional freight. And I have picked up things that they built inside a building that did not fit out the door. Uh, just so you know. So sometimes the smartest people in the rooms they don't always think about all the aspects of, of situations. So and in fact the smartest people sometimes make the biggest mistakes. Yes. Yes. And and so like I said, so sometimes, you know, you've got to kind of pay attention to the person that you are voting in and, and doing stuff and actually do some research and, and see who they are. So cool. I'm I'm glad we did this show. I'm gonna make sure we get this one out and um I'm gonna go ahead and sign off. As always. Sage out. Thank you.